Hello and welcome to Becoming the Phoenix. I'm Heather and throughout this series, I will be sharing my story of rediscovering life after facing death. I am a survivor of domestic violence, of arsenic poisoning, and of the mental and physical battles that followed. For nearly a decade, I did everything I could to try and forget what happened to me. But I finally feel empowered to tell my story in an effort to help others. In this podcast, I will cover topics like domestic violence and the science behind trauma, as well as provide helpful resources and alternative ways to treat mental health. Join me to find out how I finally rose from the ashes of my painful past. Please note, this episode will contain depictions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, and suicidal ideation. It may be triggering and at times difficult to listen to. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of my podcast, Becoming the Phoenix. I fully intended on releasing this podcast shortly after I announced it, but putting it together has been a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. I underestimated how many memories would flood back, and it's been a little bit of a challenge to not feel overwhelmed sometimes. So I apologize for the extensive delay, but just know that I'm putting my whole heart and soul into this podcast because I want it to be as helpful as possible. So I'm taking a lot of time on it. Okay, guys, here we go. So I grew up in an extremely loving home with my parents and younger brother in Idaho. We have a huge extended family, and we all got together often. I was the first baby in the family, and I was spoiled with attention and love from day one. As my brother and I got older, my family only got closer, and we were blessed to experience some amazing things and make lifelong memories together. My brother and I had everything we needed growing up, both physically and emotionally, and we were encouraged to pursue our dreams and be ourselves. We lived a sheltered life, blissfully unaware that everyone else didn't grow up like we did. I excelled in school and stayed completely out of trouble. I never snuck out. I was a straight-A student. I didn't drink. I didn't even know what most drugs were. My parents were my idols, and from an early age, I knew that I wanted nothing more than to grow up and find a love like theirs and have my own happy family someday. Instead, I dated a felon who abused me physically, sexually, verbally, emotionally, and financially all while slowly poisoning me. I share all of that to demonstrate an important point. Trauma doesn't discriminate. Anyone can fall victim to domestic violence. Mental health issues affect people of all backgrounds. I had everything going for me, but I still ended up in a controlling and abusive relationship that almost killed me. Throughout my podcast, I will be referring to my ex as Max. Before dating Max, I had only been in one serious relationship. That guy was a bad boy who had been in trouble before, and I had always been attracted to that. I've spent a long time trying to understand why that is, but the best I can guess is that it was just a whole new world to me. We had completely different backgrounds, and it was exciting for me to see this other side of life. He treated me extremely well, and I saw that you can't always judge someone by their past. So when I met Max and learned he had a criminal record, I wasn't really bothered by it. I was only 21, and I had never been exposed to any kind of domestic violence, so when I met him, I could have never known what was in store for me. We met at an extreme sporting event in September of 2012. I had never been to anything like that, but I decided to go last minute. When we pulled up, I distinctly remember seeing Max and thinking, sweet, I've got eye candy for the weekend. 
I was overweight and shy, so I was shocked when this attractive, confident guy approached me and started flirting. All of the insecurities I usually felt talking to guys weren't there. He made me feel at ease. Even though we were at a big event, he spent time getting to know me and included me throughout the weekend. He even opened up to me a little bit, and I thought that was awesome. He was this bad boy, but he was being vulnerable with me, even though we had just met, and I felt special because of that. I'm an empath and have always found myself drawn to people who needed help, and this guy was definitely no exception. His childhood was horrific, to say the least, and I felt really bad for him. On the last day, he asked for my phone number and I gave it to him, thinking we would text for a while, but that he would probably go back to normal life and forget about me. As we pulled out of the campground, I remember my friend saying, Ooh, so are you guys going to date now or what? And I said, you're funny. I'll probably never see him again. In my mind, he was completely out of my league and I was just some random girl he met one weekend. As a child, I was carefree and I had a ton of friends, but by the time I got to middle and high school, I was shy, focused on my education, and embarrassed by my weight and acne, so my social life was almost non-existent. I was smart, responsible, and had a big heart, but I still found it difficult to make friends and pursue relationships. After being bombarded with ads showing, quote, perfect girls and all the other trash young girls are subjected to growing up, I came to the conclusion that people must not like me because I wasn't pretty enough. My self-esteem plummeted and I became very concerned with my looks. In high school, I wouldn't leave the house unless I got completely ready, even if it was just a quick trip to the store. So when Max made me feel attractive, even though I was in the middle of nowhere camping, I thought, wow, that must mean something. After that weekend, I think there was maybe two or three days where we just texted before we started hanging out on an almost daily basis. He would come to my apartment and we would talk all night and watch movies. We learned a lot about each other really quickly and that made me feel really connected to him. Even though he had a rough past, he seemed put together. He had a steady job, had stayed out of trouble for years, and got along well with my family. Once he passed the family test, I was all in. Two months after I met Max, my family was getting ready to go on our annual trip to Oahu. It has always been the highlight of my year, and although I wished I could bring Max along, I knew financially that wasn't possible. I figured he would be bummed that he couldn't go, but would at least be excited for me. Instead, he said something to the effect of, you can't go, so you better let them know that you're staying here. I just stood there and laughed because he had to be kidding, but he wasn't. He just calmly said, it's me or them, and walked off. That was the first time I saw Max in a different light. I can remember thinking, is this what people mean when they say a red flag? I was sorry he couldn't go, but there was no way I was going to miss out on a big family tradition for some guy I just met. I went on the trip and I had an amazing time with my family. He gave me grief the whole trip, but I did my best to ignore him. That vacation was the last time I'd be the Heather that I had always known. I couldn't have known it then, but that was the last true freedom I would have for many years to come. When I got home from that trip, things seemed fine with Max, but I immediately began having what I thought were recurring UTIs. I also started to notice that some of my clothes weren't fitting anymore and I had lost weight. I started feeling really sick all the time and started seeing doctors. I had no clue what an incredibly long and difficult medical journey I was about to embark upon. After restricted diets, multiple medications, endless medical tests, and tons of uncertainty, I was finally diagnosed with gallbladder disease in January 2013. I was told that my gallbladder was functioning at about 20% and I needed surgery to have it removed. I later found out that what I thought were recurring UTIs was actually interstitial cystitis. Interstitial cystitis, or IC, is a rare and incurable bladder disease. 
Thankfully, I've been in remission for the most part for several years, but when the flare-ups do come, it's completely debilitating. Out of the many injuries and surgeries and sicknesses I've dealt with, I think IC is one of the most painful. After I had gallbladder surgery, Max offered to help take care of me, so he stayed at my apartment to manage my medications and prepare me food while I recovered. He loved playing caregiver. What started as a week turned into him staying permanently. It felt like one step closer to having a big happy family, so I welcomed the change with open arms. I had been in a lot of pain and stuck inside for so long after surgery that I was thrilled when my family decided to go on a cruise. We had never done that before, and I couldn't wait to see more of the world with my favorite people. Max knew that I was going to go after the Hawaii situation, so instead of trying to make me stay, he found ways to guilt me. He got upset about me going to a nail salon. I wanted to get a cruise-themed manicure, and he said, who do you need to impress while you're gone? I thought it was dramatic, but again brushed it off. It was still a new relationship and figured that once he saw another trip with no issues, he would get over his insecurities. But something changed drastically in Max when I got home. He was furious that he wasn't able to contact me during the cruise, even though I had explained that I have no phone access the whole time. He started trying to control every aspect of my life, from how I dressed to who I talked to and how I spent my money. He convinced me that joining our bank accounts would be a good idea. From then on out, my money was his money. He would spend hundreds of dollars on fishing gear, guns, and truck parts, but I had to consult him before making any purchases. If I bought something without talking to him first, he would throw it in the dumpster or run it over with his truck. He started checking the mileage on my car every morning and evening to make sure it matched the distance from our place to my work and back. He would make comments about girls on TV and how hot they were and how lucky a guy would be to have her. And of course, every time it was some girl that looked absolutely nothing like me, and he'd suggest that I try doing my hair like this girl or dress like that girl. I stopped doing photography, something I loved, because he didn't trust me to be out of his sight for a photo shoot, even if I was just doing senior pictures for a girl. Instead, I was forced to participate in his hobbies. He would drive us to the middle of nowhere at 11 o'clock at night so we could go catfishing. I was always cold and tired, but I sat there with my mouth shut until 3 or 4 in the morning so I didn't set him off. He was into hunting, so he took me, the animal lover that I am, out to fields multiple times where he wanted me to shoot ground squirrels. I absolutely hated it, but he was always in a better mood when we did the things he wanted, so it was easier to just get through it than object. One time I was at a girl's brunch with his family, and he called me 30 or 40 times threatening to break my laptop and TV because he found an old iPad of mine boxed up in a closet and he couldn't unlock it. I made up some excuse and rushed home to try and calm him down before he destroyed the apartment. But then, on the other hand, there were some days where he wouldn't pester me at all, and it felt normal at home. Sometimes he would text me nice things throughout the day. Some nights he would cook me dinner, and we'd laugh together watching a movie. He would do random acts of kindness for strangers while we were out getting groceries. He got along so well with my family. Every moment of every day, I was walking on eggshells. I never knew which version of him was going to walk through the door after work every night. At the beginning, he often tried to apologize or make up for his outbursts, and I attributed his insecurities and need for control to his childhood, and I thought I could help change him, help fix him. I didn't believe that he would ever actually hurt me. He was such a nice guy when I met him, and he looked so normal. No way he could be a monster and things could get worse, right? Within two months of him moving in, we had the cops called on us by a neighbor. We lived on the top floor, and our downstairs neighbor heard a struggle, so they called. Max saw a picture I posted of myself that day, and he apparently didn't approve of it, so he tackled me to the ground and held me down while he screamed in my face. I remember saying, what are you doing? Stop. And he almost snapped out of it. He started crying and apologizing to me. I'm so sorry, I just had a bad day, and I shouldn't have taken it out on you. 
Before I could respond, the cops knocked on our door. I had never had an encounter with cops before, and I was so shocked by what had just happened. Max had never put his hands on me before that. I was terrified and confused, and I didn't know what to do. So at the time, I thought the best thing to do was just lie. I was terrified of what aftermath might follow if I was honest. I told the cops that I had tripped and fell, and the yelling was because I had broken something and Max was upset. It felt like they were there asking me questions forever. It was probably just a few minutes, and my act must have been convincing enough because the cops left. I can't remember anything after the door closed. I think my brain just shut off because it couldn't handle what was going on. I'm sure he repeatedly apologized, and I decided to just hope things would change. I look back at that event now and wish I could just shake myself and say, Wake up, you don't deserve this. Over the next four months, he continued to manipulate and brainwash me, mostly through verbal and emotional abuse. He started name-calling and belittling me on a daily basis. You're stupid. You're worthless. You're crazy. You're weak. Jealous. Dumb. Boring. Fat. Psychotic. Trash. A nutcase. A crybaby. A loser. He'd often go from saying things like, you're out of your mind, no one else would ever want you, you're lucky I tolerate how annoying you are, you're nothing without me, to, we have to be together, this is forever, there is no one else, you can't leave, let's start having kids. He once begged me to run off and elope. He knew how traditional I am and that having my family at my wedding was non-negotiable, but he said our relationship would be perfect if I would just marry him. I asked him how that would change anything, and he said, because that way I would know you actually love me, and I'd know you'll be with me forever. He then proceeded to try and casually inform me that there are laws against cheating on your spouse in Idaho. What a dream proposal. We'd now been together for almost a year. The controlling behavior and verbal abuse had escalated, and my health quickly declined again. I would throw up every time I ate and would wake up some days with my stomach so swollen I looked eight months pregnant. In August of 2013, I was hospitalized while doctors tried to figure out what was going on. The whole time I was in the hospital, Max was gone. He told me that he had to leave town for work. Um, At the time, I never doubted his work trips, but looking back, there were an awful lot of them, and I'm sure multiple times he said he was working. He was probably off doing other stuff. The doctors released me after a week in the hospital with the diagnosis of gastroparesis. Gastroparesis literally translates to paralysis of the stomach. If your stomach muscles are paralyzed, then digestion is slowed, or in my case, stopped. When I have flare-ups, I can go days without eating. Any food I do eat isn't digested properly, so it just sits in my stomach and I constantly feel full. Before I knew what was going on, I had no way of treating it, and food would sit for so long that it would begin to ferment. I would rarely eat, so I lost even more weight and became more malnourished. Now when I have flare-ups, I have medication that kind of helps stimulate the stomach muscles, but it's something that I'm going to live with for the rest of my life. Shortly after I got out of the hospital and had recovered, Max and I moved from my apartment building into a house of our own. I thought it was going to be a fresh start for us, somewhere we could start over and begin a family. It sounds so delusional saying that now, but I honestly believed that he was the only one who would love me, and I had to make this work somehow. For a year straight, I had been told that all of our relationship issues were because of me. If I would just follow the rules, things would be okay. If I would just stop being crazy, things would be okay. And I believed him. I was completely brainwashed. What I thought was going to be a positive turning point in our relationship turned out to be the darkest six months of my life. As we moved into the new house, I thought Max's excitement was coming from the fact that we were taking steps for our future. But now I see that he just wanted to isolate me even more. We no longer had such close neighbors that they could hear him screaming threats and breaking things. His control over my life and the punishments I suffered for breaking rules amplified, and things became very dark very quickly. 
And just so you guys can get an idea of what kind of rules I'm talking about, I'll list off some of the main ones that I can remember. So biggest one, I wasn't allowed to talk to any male outside of my family, point blank period. My phone had to sit on his armrest at home so he could see every notification on my phone right as it popped up. And if anyone who wasn't approved texted or messaged me, he would message them pretending to be me and say horrible stuff to them. And then he'd block them. If it was a random number, he would make me call the number right then on his phone to prove it wasn't some guy. But of course, I, you know, I couldn't even look in the direction of his phone. I wasn't allowed to have Instagram, Pinterest, or any other social media or game where you could directly message other people. I was allowed to keep Facebook, but he had my password and he checked it daily, including any comments and likes I made. I think he let me keep Facebook because my whole family was on there, and if I deleted mine randomly, alarm bells might go off in their heads. Um, But if I was on Facebook outside of my work hours, he would blow up my phone asking where I really was. He knew my work schedule down to when all my breaks were, so if I took my break or lunch late and he saw that I was logged in, I would get grilled after work. There were roads I was banned from driving on because he thought my ex might live on them. I was forced to text him anytime I left a location and if I was stuck in traffic and then immediately once I got there. I had to take a picture to confirm where I was and send him a list of all the people that were there. And for years, I still constantly updated everyone where I was and anytime I made any movements. I was to have the house spotless with a candle lit when he got home even though I typically got home only like 20 minutes before he did. And if I wasn't sitting in the living room waiting for him, he immediately assumed I was hiding in the house doing something bad and he would interrogate me for hours. If I wasn't with him or at work, he would become enraged if I didn't respond to his text within two to three minutes. Anything past that meant repercussions for me when I got home. As things got worse though, it really was a non-issue because I didn't go anywhere but work without him. I wasn't allowed to sing along with any music in the car because it ruined the experience. He had a set playlist of eight songs that were approved, and they were always on repeat. Nothing else, just those songs. Now looking back at the songs, all but one had what I guess you could call, like, possessive lyrics. I want you to stay, I need you, you're mine, I can't live without you. You get the idea. He had to approve any outfits I wore outside of the house. If he wasn't home when I was getting ready, I had to take a picture and send it to him and make sure that he approved. You guys, that shit is insane. Like, are you kidding me? If your partner is giving you rules like that, that is control. And it is not healthy and it is not in any way okay. Just one rule like that is more than enough of a reason to get out. But here's the deal. He didn't sit me down one night and be like, okay, Heather, here's a list of 10 rules you have to follow or else. He would just get furious about something, punish me as he saw fit that day, and then it went without saying I wasn't to do it again. If he even thought I was breaking a rule for the second time, the punishment was more severe. He always made sure to tell me that if I would just behave, he wouldn't need to make and enforce rules in the first place. So I think it had been about a month since we moved into the house when the sexual abuse started. At the time, I didn't even understand that what was happening was even sexual abuse. Max had repeatedly told me that I was his future wife, so it should always be available to him. I thought it couldn't be sexual assault if we were in a relationship, even though I didn't want it. He made me feel so bad about myself every day. It was impossible to want to be vulnerable and intimate with somebody like that. If he made advances at me and I couldn't convince him that I was into it, he would say, do you just want me to go find someone else to have sex with? I can get any girl I want. I would cry and say no, and he'd take that as a green light to undress me. He was never bothered by the tears running down my face. I was sexually assaulted in high school, 
and he was one of the only people I ever told, until now that is, Um, but even knowing that, he was still able to hurt me in such a deep, personal way. It was aggressive and unromantic and often painful. I would just find a spot on the ceiling or look out the window and try to focus all of my attention there and block everything else out. I started being able to zone out pretty well and he once made a comment that I need to get more into it because me laying there lifeless makes it too much like rape. While that was punishment enough, he found other ways to try and keep me from doing things he didn't like. He would tackle me to the ground. He would slam and pin me against the wall. He would spit in my face. He would throw things at me. He would get an inch from my face and scream at the top of his lungs. He would choke me. And sometimes this was totally out of the blue. I would literally be sitting there doing nothing and he would just flip out. His aggression was not limited to just me, but also my stuff and the house we lived in. He broke lights, furniture, dishes, my jewelry and makeup and anything else that was near him when he got mad. During one of his rages, he threw my phone so hard that it got stuck in the wall perfectly sideways, which of course left a big hole in the wall. I told my property manager that I had accidentally hit the wall when moving our bed frame in. I constantly had to make up stories and take the blame to cover for his growing instability. I can remember at least once when he brought dog poop in from the backyard and put it on my side of the bed under the covers. Thankfully, I noticed it before I got in, um, but I noticed him laughing, and so I was like, what the fuck is this? He said it was funny because I wasn't worth shit. He always had my phone hidden overnight so that he knew I wasn't on it while he was asleep. On several occasions, he accused me of checking someone out that was walking or running on the sidewalk while we drove down the road. Like, somehow, as we're going 45 miles an hour, I'm going to be able to see someone well enough to determine that he's hotter than Max. One of his favorite punishments was where he would pull over, force me out of the truck, and make me walk home. It never mattered how far away we were or what the weather was like. The farthest walk was probably about an hour and a half, but the worst was when he threatened to throw my dog Romeo out of the truck and into the road if I didn't get out. He never actually hurt Romeo, thank God, but he often used threats of violence against him to get me to comply. I, to this day, still feel terrible for having Romeo in such a toxic environment, but he was my only lifeline. He was the only other living thing who was in that house experiencing what I was. Sometimes I would cuddle up with him and cry and tell him how I was feeling, and he would just lay with me and be my escape, even if it was just for an hour. He was the only one I could actually be honest with. I'm so thankful he was there to comfort me. I really don't know what I would have done without him. If Max ever hurt Romeo, I would have immediately turned him in. It's so sad to think now that I would have been willing to leave him just like that for my pet, but I wasn't able to do that for myself. He got me to a point where I thought I was less valuable than a dog. So I know it seems impossible after hearing how bad things were that nobody knew, but I want to make it clear that at no point did I ever tell anyone what was going on behind closed doors. Not friends, not family, no one. Feeling like I wasn't able to tell my parents what was going on was almost as painful as the abuse itself. I was lying to my family and it killed me. To my knowledge, no one ever questioned our happiness because when we were in public together, we put on a damn good show. Everyone thought we were a perfect couple and we were going to get married and have all these kids. He let his ugly side come out once or twice in front of his family, but I never told my parents about that. I'm still amazed at how well my brain was able to compartmentalize everything and that I was able to hide all of the pain I was in. It was partly fear, it was partly shame and guilt, and it was partly that I truly believed things would get better and we would live happily ever after. I knew that if I told anyone how he really treated me, they would see no future for us and stop supporting our relationship. 
I felt like I was too close to finally having my own family to give up. In my mind, we were too connected to split now. We had a house together, shared a bank account, had met each other's families, picked out kids' names. I was scared of starting over and never finding anybody else. Max had fed me the same lines over and over, and I eventually believed what he told me. That I was lucky to have him, that nobody else would want me, that I was destined to have his children, that I was worthless without him. It's so clear now that I was being completely brainwashed and manipulated, but I was so lost in the situation that I thought that's what I deserved and it's just how things were supposed to go for me. I was also really scared of what Max might do if I went against him. He had guns and knives, so I was in fear for my family a lot. He knew that they're my entire heart and soul, and the best way to hurt me was to hurt them. The only time I ever tried standing up for myself, Max went out in our backyard screaming and crying, tied a rope to one of our trees, and said he was going to hang himself. I called his aunt and I told her I didn't know what to do and I couldn't handle it anymore, Um, so I know she came over, but the rest of the day is a blur. I do remember him telling me that the only way he wouldn't kill himself was if I never left him. Even though he had hurt me so bad, I still loved him somehow. I told myself that he'd just been dealt a really shitty hand in life and I couldn't abandon him or let him die because of a choice I made. I really didn't think I could live with that for the rest of my life, so I chose to stay. Things kept getting worse, and I finally reached a point where I didn't think I could keep going. So much pain, shame, and regret had been bottled up for so long, and my mind and my body were giving up. One day while Max was gone, I sat down and wrote letters to several of my family members. In case something happened to me, I wanted them to know the truth of what had been going on and how much I loved them. I didn't have a plan to end my life, but I felt like I needed to write the letters in case I got to that point someday or in case Max ended up going too far one time. I folded them up, put them in an envelope, and hid them in my car because I figured that was the safest place to hide them from Max. In January of 2014, the cops were called on us again, this time by my dad. He had called me just to say hi and he could immediately tell something was wrong by my voice. Max had been in a rage that morning, and I was an absolute mess. I tried to play it off, but he knew. I can vividly remember being curled up in a ball in the guest bedroom closet, begging my dad not to call the cops because I was so scared of what Max would do. The cops pulled up, and my dad was not far behind them. Somehow, it was the same cops who had shown up before. To my absolute horror, they told my dad they had dealt with us before. They pulled Max outside and talked with him while I stayed inside and tried to concoct a cover story. Even then, I was trying to figure out how to keep him happy and keep us together. Max told the cops I was trying to attack him, and he only restrained me as self-defense. Guys, by this time, I had shriveled down to a point of being scary skinny. My grandparents had asked if I had cancer or if I was doing drugs because I was so frail. And Max worked in masonry and was so strong, I thought it was hilarious that he was trying to use that as his defense. But the cops believed him and, again, let us go with a warning. I decided to go along with Max's story, and I told my dad it was all my fault. I told him I was being super emotional and overly dramatic, and it was all on me. So after a lot of pushing, I finally was able to convince him that I was okay and that Max was not hurting me, and I just begged him to let it go. It was shortly after that altercation that I reached the end of my rope. One night, Max came home and started yelling, accusing me of cheating on him like he often did. He slammed me against the wall and told me to confess. His eyes were almost black, just nothing there. He kept coming at me over and over, and I finally lost it. I went into our bathroom and grabbed a bottle of Xanax. 
It had been prescribed to me for sleep and severe anxiety, but I rarely used it because Max told me it made me look weak. I opened the bottle and shoved a handful into my mouth. In that moment, I wasn't really trying to kill myself, but I also didn't care what happened either. I figured that if I didn't die, that this could be my call for help. Um, Everything was a total fog, but I can remember hearing Max calling my parents. The next thing I remember is waking up at my parents' house in my old bedroom. I was super confused and barely remembered anything about the night before. My parents sat me down and we had a very long and emotional talk. I didn't share details with my parents, but they knew it wasn't a healthy situation. I finally realized that this was my chance to get out, so I called Max with my parents by my side to end the relationship. I don't remember what I said or what he said. I just remember the feeling I had when I hung up the phone. You'd think this was the end of the story, and I wish it was, but it wasn't. If you've never experienced control like this, it's hard to understand how strong the power of manipulation and fear and emotional abuse can be. But Max was able to lure me back in and convince me that he had changed. Although I had seen how good life without him could be, he still had this strong hold over me, and we got back together against my family's wishes. I still can't really explain how I was able to let him back in after everything he'd done, but for three months, things actually went pretty well. While we were separated, I had got a couple roommates to help me cover rent, and Max got along well with my roommates. We weren't fighting as much as before, so I really thought he had changed. We got back into a routine, and when I told him I was going to be taking a trip to Africa by myself, he was surprisingly supportive and didn't give me any grief. He even helped me pack and offered to stay at the house to watch Romeo. Going to Africa was a huge dream of mine from age five. I promised myself that someday I would make it there no matter what. And while I was completely swept away with how incredible Kenya was, Max was cheating on me with my roommate. On the last day of the trip, I got a message from a friend who told me she needed to tell me something. While I was 9,000 miles away from home, my boyfriend and someone who I thought was a friend were hooking up behind my back. Although I was absolutely devastated, I wasn't the same person as before I left. Exploring Africa by myself showed me that I was capable of being independent and finding my own way, even in a place so wildly different than anything I'd ever experienced. The emotions I had while I was camping in the savannah and going on safaris every day reminded me that the world has way too much to offer to be locked in a house under someone else's control. When I got home, my roommate had already moved out without a word to me, and I told Max to take his shit and get out of my life. So while I was preparing for this podcast, I asked you guys what questions you had, and a lot of people wanted to know where Max is now. So since Max and I broke up in June of 2014, he has racked up nine new criminal cases that include 11 misdemeanors and seven felonies. Within three months of our split, he was back in trouble with the law and he's been in and out of prison since then. Felony aggravated assault, felony strangulation, felony fleeing a police officer, multiple drug charges, malicious injury to property, domestic battery, the list goes on. I found out that all of the violent charges were a result of abuse against his most recent girlfriend. And when I realized that it would have been me being strangled and going through all these court cases had I not left, this huge wave of emotion just came crashing down over me. On one hand, so incredibly relieved that I was free from him, but at the same time, really brokenhearted for this woman. Like, I I felt a sense of guilt for not protecting her somehow. And that's part of what pushed me to do this. 
The felony strangulation case was five months ago, and he faced up to 15 years in prison, but his girlfriend decided not to go through with the charges, so the case was dismissed. As far as I know, he is currently out, living in my area, and addicted to meth. The last time he was released from prison, he moved to a house that was a five-minute drive on the same road from my apartment. I only recently learned that, and it totally creeps me out, like, not knowing that he was that close for so long. Uh, He sent me a letter a week from prison when he first got locked up and has tried contacting me through several fake Snapchat accounts over the years. And at one point, I believe he had someone actually following me. I would be driving somewhere and I would get a call from Max in prison asking what I was doing in that part of town or saying that he liked the hat I was wearing that day. I've lived in fear of him for the last nine years, always on alert, keeping my eye out for him. I hate that he still has even a tiny bit of control over me in that way, and it's something I want to work on, but I also need to stay safe, so it can be a tough thing to balance sometimes. Although we are certain that he poisoned me, it was years ago, and without proof of him actually purchasing arsenic, I'm unable to press charges. At his job, he had access to multiple things that could be a source of arsenic, but again, I have no way of proving that, so... No, unfortunately, I cannot prosecute this monster, Um, so I guess in a way, telling my story and doing what I can to help other people stay safe is my form of justice. I know this episode was heavy and a lot to take in, but I just want to say thank you so much for listening. The rest of the podcast is geared towards education and providing resources and sharing positive ways of overcoming the trauma you've experienced, so... Thanks for hanging in there through this heavy first episode, but I wanted to share my story first so that everybody is aware of the kind of stuff that I'm trying to help stop. If you or someone you know needs help, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, or the National Helpline. All three numbers can be found in this episode's description. The only way to stop the violence is to stop the silence. Thank you guys so much for listening to Becoming the Phoenix. I hope each of you has a wonderful day, and I'll see you all next time.